I'm an astronomer and space scientist, a professor at Cambridge. I have the uh, title of Astronomer Royal in the UK, but I've also been very much involved in uh, policy for two reasons. First, I was president of the Royal Society, and also I'm a member of the House of Lords, which is, in a sense, part of the UK Parliament. That was Lord Martin Rees. I'm Kelsey Warner, and you're listening to Recorded. In his 2003 book, Our Final Hour, Lord Rees predicted the human race had a 50% chance of an extinction event before 2100. I spoke to him about the threat of COVID-19, science and social policy, and the human endeavor to colonize Mars. Here are some extracts from our discussion. In terms of how you assess and, I guess, make your predictions or issue your warnings, what are you what are you looking at when you're when you're mulling these questions? Are you a big data person? Are you a voracious reader? Of course, you have to rely on your own research in yes. your own expertise area. But what does that look like? Well, I should say, I mean, I'm I'm part of a a community um, and a, a network, having been a scientist for a long time. But in particular, I'm at Cambridge University, where we have a uh, centre which I was the co-founder of, uh, to uh, uh, study, in particular, extreme global risks. So they're one of the few places in the world that has a centre focused on just these areas. And so we are are able to um, explore scenarios for um, bio, cyber, and environmental threats and draw on the expertise um, of Cambridge University, which is one of the world's great universities for science, and also our contacts around the world. So um, uh, I don't have much expertise myself uh, compared to the scale of these problems, but uh, I do feel that more people in the scientific community ought to be focusing on these because there's a lot of emphasis uh, on small risks. Um, are foods bad for you, uh, carcinogenic, radiation doses and things like that. Lots of analysis of small risks, but very few people thinking about the really big, potentially catastrophic risks. Mm. And of course, the uh, COVID-19 has been a a game changer because that has woken us up to the fact that we are in a world where we are more interconnected. Any disaster in one region is going to spread around the world very quickly at the speed of a jet aircraft or indeed at the speed of light via social media, where panic and rumour can spread at that speed. And, of course, in the case of, uh, of these pandemics, um, uh, we sh- should have expected them because we've had um, pandemics of uh, influenza and, of course, we've had uh, um, SARS and MERS. And I think we've learned our lesson that we've got to be prepared for more things and it's worth paying a big insurance premium, as it were. Of course, what I find scary is that it's not as bad as we could imagine such a pandemic being, because mm-hmm. you could certainly imagine a pandemic which is um, as readily transmissible as this one, but where the fatality rate is much higher. I mean, in your assessment of how our response to COVID has been, I think we in January, we're a bit back on our heels, February still back on our heels. But now, how are you feeling about the global response? Well, I mean, it's uh, it's different in different countries, but uh, it does seem uh, that uh, the peak has been passed in most countries. Um, but I think there are uh, two worries. One is that, of course, there can be 
second and third waves. Um, and it may be some time, maybe years, before we have a vaccine which can deal with those. So it may be a recurrent feature of our lives. And secondly, it could be that we have not get, got near the peak uh, in um, the developing world, in India and Africa, uh, where, of course, the fatality rate could prove to be even higher and even more tragic than what's happened already uh, in uh, um, the countries of the North. We knew we lived in a world of haves and have-nots prior to the pandemic, but this has really made us more acutely aware of the dangers of being poor. Where does this sort of increasing stratification sit on your risk spectrum? Well, of course, uh, first, a parochial comment. I think it's clear the response to the, uh, the pandemic, uh, certainly in my country and others, um, has indeed accentuated inequalities in the sense that uh, um, the, the people who are better off tend to be those who can work from home and are not therefore losing their jobs and aren't particularly handicapped. And I'm in this uh, lucky minority, uh, whereas those who are um, uh, uh, trapped in a uh, uh, um, small apartment in a tower block and are losing their jobs and have kids are really suffering hardship. Uh, so those who are suffering the greatest hardship through the lockdown and uh, propensity to get infected are those who are already disadvantaged. So it is accentuating the class distinctions uh, and uh, wealth distinctions in countries like the UK and the US and others. Um, so that's one thing. But uh, thinking globally, of course, uh, um, I worry very much about the uh, inequalities between the, uh, the North and the South, particularly between the prosperous countries of, uh, um, uh, of, of Europe and the US um, and uh, Sub-Saharan Africa and parts of India. I worry about that, um, uh, partly on uh, humane grounds because uh, they are the regions that are likely to suffer real poverty and mass uh, fatalities mm. because of lack of medical attention. But also, uh, I do think that if we want to have a stable world in future, then the richer parts of the world really have to ensure that Africa in particular doesn't lag behind. And the problem in Africa, obviously, is that uh, um, the population is um, about 1.3 billion now, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, it's going to rise to 2 billion by mid-century. And on some scenarios, it might double again by the end of the century. Um, and of course, if those people are stuck in the poverty trap, then this is a global tragedy, but also it's a recipe for global instability. Um, because uh, um, the one thing that they already have in these countries is knowledge of the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. They have mobile phones and internet access. Mm -hmm. So they know what they're and they're quite justifiably outraged at the injustice of their fate. I want you to speak a little bit more about this insurance policy that you, you touched upon in a previous talk more recently, but I think it's something that you must be thinking about a lot these days. What is the insurance policy you want the, the world to have coming out of this? What would that look like? Well, I think to be mindful that uh, we need to, uh, to reduce um, inequalities we need to have stronger international institutions 
um, not only to cope with pandemics like this, but also, in my view, to uh, channel support and help to uh, sub-Saharan Africa and other regions to collaborate with them in a way that uh, helps them to develop. Otherwise, I think we will have growing differentials. But I think uh, more generally, if we look at what's going to happen, clearly we need to ensure that uh, medical science develops fast so that if we're lucky, we can develop vaccines against future pandemics more quickly than we're likely to do for this one. Uh, so clearly, we should prioritize that area of science, have international bodies which can uh, quickly manufacture and distribute a vaccine if there is a future pandemic. That's one thing. But of course, uh, all this is um, against the backdrop of fast-changing technology anyway, AI automation and all the rest of it. And that's something which uh, all countries have to cope with. And here again, um, I think we've got to um, ensure that there aren't losers for these changes. Mm. I mean, there's been a great deal of discussion of um, uh, um, the effect on the labour market of automation, AI and all that. And Do you think short- COVID will hasten universal basic income or are we still not there yet? Um, well, I mean, uh, we want that goal. I mean, I think a universal basic income may not be quite the right way to do it um, because there's, there's so much work to be done if the jobs exist. And the point is that rather than uh, give people a basic income who want to work and can work, we should make sure that there are uh, jobs probably funded by the public sector um, mm-hmm. as, as carers, teachers' assistants, gardeners in public parks and things of that kind. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's better. I mean, we need to have a basic uh, uh, safety net, of course, for those who aren't able to work and sick, and, and, uh, and that doesn't exist, so not in the United States, for instance. Uh, so we, uh, I think we in Europe uh, ought, ought to learn far more from Scandinavia than from the United States, because the Scandinavia has a much better social system, and so we need a, we need a welfare state for everyone. I want to switch gears to space and talk to you about... Um the backdrop of COVID has been announcements from SpaceX and NASA and Virgin Galactic and Boeing. And even the UAE Space Agency has, you know, brought their hope probe from Japan um, in the last couple of months. So uh, just a very general question about why, why is space important now more than ever? Why are we so obsessed with it? Yes. yes. Um, Well, I mean, of course, um, I'm old enough to remember uh, the moon landings 50 years ago. Uh, and at that time, um, I had thought that... Uh, Where um, were you? We didn't have to, um, I, I, I was at, 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 uh, at university then. Yes, and I, I remember uh, watching these. And of course, I've had the privilege of meeting all these astronauts. I mean, I met, I met Neil Armstrong and all, all of those people recently. Um, so, so I very much followed this subject. Um, but of course, um, to young people... Um, it's all ancient history because uh, um, you've got to be at least middle-aged to remember when people walked on the moon. And the point is that um, uh, the moon landings were funded as a part of the Cold War, superpower rivalry between the US and, and Russia. And once the Americans got there first, having spent incidentally 4% of their federal budget on NASA, uh, they scaled back. With the next step, um, and, and and so now it's about 0.6%. So um, space has uh, 
consisted of uh, mainly unmanned programs and, of course, people going just in low Earth orbit. But, of course, um, uh, space is important. Indeed, we depend on space every day uh, for, um, for communications, um, for sat-nav and uh, position sensitive, uh, for weather forecasting and um, environmental monitoring. So, um, And, of course, um, space science um, has benefited hugely. But we've kind of we've kind of just depended on our very like our like back garden so far. We haven't really depended yet on the great beyond. That's right, and 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 the question is how important is that? Of course, uh, um, as you mentioned, um, uh, what's happening now is that there are some independent companies which are able to uh, launch. Uh, vehicles. I mean, the leader is SpaceX, but as uh, Jeff Bezos says, Blue Origin and Boeing and a few others who are going to be able to do this. But it also raises the question of the role of human spaceflight. My personal view is that the practical case for sending humans into space is getting weaker all the time. Of course, uh, the Apollo program is a huge human adventure. Uh, but but now that robots are much better, robots can sort of uh, do the geology of Mars as, as well as a human can. So we should be robots... we should be three three D printing the mining factory on Mars using the robots. We should not. Well, well, be... no. well eventually, but in the shorter term, yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> assembling large things under zero G in space, uh, assembling huge um, radio dishes and solar energy collectors in space uh, by having a uh, robots that can assemble things too large to launch in one piece, as it were. So mm-hmm. that will happen. And then, as you say, um, um, maybe doing this similar things on, uh, on the moon or even on Mars. But the question is, what's the motive for that? Uh, I, I think it's good that there may be a few people, a few adventurers who are prepared to, to risk going into space, and good luck to them. I think uh, my, I would make two points about manned spaceflight. One is that... If I was a, a taxpayer in the United States, I would not want to pay anything towards NASA's man program. I think it should be left entirely to the private sector because there's no practical need for it. It's just an adventure and an, an indulgence. And so good luck to people who want to do it. And of course, the private sector can do it much more cheaply because they can take higher risks than NASA or equivalent bodies can impose on publicly funded civilians. Mm-hmm. The shuttle failed twice in 135 launches. Each was a big trauma in America because it had been presented as safe. But if you have private venture and the people who are going to be launched into space are people with the mindset of uh, mountaineers and people who do extreme sports and all that, and test pilots who are prepared to take higher risks, then it can be done much more cheaply. And I think it should be left to people like that. And I do hope that there will be some privately funded people Mm. who will, by the end of a century, have maybe established a small community on Mars. And in fact, uh, Elon Musk himself has said that he would like to die on Mars, but not on impact. And he's, I think, 49 years old now, so he might manage that. Good luck to him. And I think uh, it's good if that happens. But... There's one respect in which I much disagree with Elon Musk and also with others like my late colleague Stephen Hawking, um, because I think it's a dangerous delusion to think about mass emigration to Mars and to think that we can somehow escape the Earth's problems by going somewhere else. There's no planet B. 
dealing with climate change here on Earth is simple compared to terraforming Mars. And the idea of a uh, big colony on Mars um, is as ridiculous as a big colony at the bottom of the ocean or at the South Pole, and not many people would want to partake in those. So the case for manned space flight is not a practical case. I mean, even when we landed on the moon, there were guys in IBM jackets sitting at mission control. We've, yes. you know, we've always relied on public-private partnerships. And right yes. now, what's really scared me, actually, is amid COVID, we're really relying on the largesse of private citizens and private institutions to bail yes, us yes. out of real existential threat because yes. our public institutions are so weak. How do we kind of hold these two things and how do we strengthen our public institutions so that they are valid partners in something like space exploration? And maybe it's not their tax revenue that makes them a good partner. How do we renew our faith in the public sector and where do we extract value from them at this point? Well, first of all, I think if, uh, if the private sector takes over space, then that's fine by me. Um, although perhaps scientific uh, uh, ventures will be um, subsidized just like other researches. Uh, I think that's fine. But I think the simple answer I give to your question is um, to uh, learn more from Scandinavian countries than from the United States and to accept that uh, um, as a society advances, um, there are more fractions of the economy which are better done by the public sector than the private sector which are for the common good, etc. Uh, I think it's clear that we've had a wake-up call uh, on our health services from, from, the, uh, uh, from the, the coronavirus. But I think um, other aspects of our lives, education, uh, the environment, etc., can be improved by public action and, incidentally, international action, because things like uh, improving the environment, avoiding mass extinction, reducing the risk of climate change, etc. These have to be uh, done on a global or multinational scale. And so we need more public sector in the Scandinavian sense, but also I think we need more international bodies of the nature of the um, WHO. Yeah. I mean, but Scandinavia, in terms of size of economies and scale of innovation, do you think they've held their own against the US, even against the UK? I mean, they have very happy citizens, but they didn't bring us the iPhone, you know? Well, I mean, I think uh, I would say um, Estonia has been a cost country. Um, so so uh, I, th- I think they, they have very good social systems. I think one of the problems in uh, many Western countries, certainly the UK and the US, um, is far too much wealth going to the um, uh, socially useless financial sector. You know, just just uh, um, financial manipulation rather than leading to uh, uh, to real production. So I think uh, that's one of the social weaknesses, uh, which is more evident in the UK and the US than mm-hmm. almost anywhere else. Thank you for listening to Recorded. To subscribe to Recorded, you can head to the podcast section of the national.ae or click the subscribe button on your favorite podcasting app. This podcast was produced by Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. I've been your host, Kelsey Warner.